They arrived at dark. There were about a thousand of them. They were dressed in running shoes, running shorts, t-shirts. Some of those shirts had the names of those who had died. Those who came were sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, colleagues. They came to remember. They came to honor. It happened just two weeks ago. They gathered at the base of One World Trade Center. It's an event called the Tower Climb. A thousand participants are released in waves to ascend the 2,226 steps all the way to the top. It's the second tower climb that's taken place in New York City. And it's held in honor of New York City Fire Captain Billy Burke, who gave his life on 9-11. He was there in the North Tower in that dark stairwell. And while he was rescuing the civilians there in that tower... He felt it sway, and he knew exactly what was happening. The South Tower was collapsing. So immediately, he ordered his men and those they were rescuing to evacuate. He said, keep going. I'm right behind you. There were these two civilians, though. One was a wheelchair-bound quadriplegic, and Captain Burke would not let them die alone. So he stayed. And somewhere around the 21st floor, um, in a telephone conversation, his last words were, this is who I am. This is what I do. And the tower collapsed. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Amen. Yeah. So it's only fitting uh, on Memorial Day weekend that we conclude our series on the Christian mind uh, by not just thinking, but seeing so that we can act on the self-sacrificing love of Christ. The Christian mind is set on the self-sacrificing love of Christ. And that's the point of our scripture passage for this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 11. You'll find that on page 980 of your church Bibles. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. And I want you to see this picture of the self-sacrificing love of Christ. Paul says in Philippians 2, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, 
being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's Word. So these verses, and especially those in verses 5 through 11, um, well, scholars call these verses, an early Christian hymn. So if you want to know what our spiritual ancestors believed about the very nature and essence of Jesus, these verses tell us. You see, the Apostle Paul uh, wrote the book of Philippians somewhere around 60, AD 61. He visited Philippi, a Roman colony, uh, somewhere around AD 51. So, I mean, these verses are very, very early in terms of um, us reading them after the resurrection. Sometimes people get the mistaken idea that Jesus and what we know about him is sort of like that fisherman and the fish kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger the more the fisherman told the story and, and that Jesus, this peasant Jewish rabbi somewhere in the around the middle of the first century then the story kept getting told and to this cosmic Christ uh, you know by the end of the first century and that's not an accurate account what's accurate is what we see here that very very early in the history of Christianity Christians believed this, what we see about Jesus and, and his picture and his the very essence of who he, who he was and is. And so what I want us to do is I want us to just unpack this picture, this picture of self-sacrificing love. I want us to see it in these verses as it pertains to our king. And then I want us to hear what the point of the picture is. Because you see, we are invited into the mind of God through these verses. So when we see celebrities today, or they're on talk show or documentaries about them, and we kind of get a behind-the-scenes look at their minds, and we want to, what drives this person? What are their motives and everything? And we look at it, and we're kind of entertained by that. But listen, when we see the mind of God, the purpose is not for entertainment. The purpose is that we might be transformed. Information leading to transformation. Paul informs us about the essence of Christ so that our lives would be transformed by his life. So let's first see the picture, 
The picture is a picture of a king who descended into greatness. The picture is a picture of a king who became a servant. The picture of a king who journeyed from the heights of his heavenly throne to the depths, the bowels of the earth, and only to be exalted back to the heights. So there is a U-shaped trajectory to the to the story, the life, the narrative of Jesus, beginning in heaven. Verses 5 and 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, form of God, form. That's uh, in The New Testament comes to us by way of the Greek language, and that word form is the Greek word morphe. Uh, our words would be like metamorphosis. Morphe, form, form takes us to the very throne room of heaven. And form is not so much, uh, you know, like shell or outline as much as it is the stuff of, the DNA of. In other words, deity and divinity were and are essential to who Jesus is. It means that Jesus possessed the full essence of Yahweh, the privileges and glory of God. Jesus was at the top of the ladder. Jesus is in the corner office. Jesus is on the supreme throne, the form of God. That's what that means, which is even stronger than if Paul would have said, Jesus is God. I mean, anybody can say that. Caesar is God. That's what the Romans believed. Oprah says that today. Shirley MacLaine. Well, Paul is clear that Jesus' DNA, the very core of his essence, God, to say Jesus is to say God, which takes us to the mystery of the Trinity. You don't have to read too far into the New Testament and into Christianity to sense that the Christian God is a triune. There is a threeness to the oneness of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. There is a threeness to the oneness of God, and don't ask me to explain it. It's the mystery. Uh, and you know, if you're mathematically inclined and you like algebra, okay, you can do, you know, 3x equals y. All right. That's fine. But I want you to think relationally for just a minute about the Trinity, our triune God. Uh, one scholar said, the revealed God is never an isolated, lonely God, but comes to us in the rich relational life of Father, Son, and Spirit. Meaning that the God that we see in the Bible enjoyed perfect unity, perfect community, perfect love, perfect fellowship before creation. Uh, uh, so before angels, before humans, meaning our three-in-one God created not because he was bored, not because he was lonely. Why did he create? Because he's love. The nature of love is self-sacrificing and self-giving. The nature of God is I will give you. Giving for the sake of others. And specifically as this 
pertains to the Son, we read in Colossians 1 that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him, and in him all things hold together. And Paul uses that very specific phrase in Colossians 1, firstborn. And that's not the same as first created. Because the Son is not created. The Son is God. The Father is God. The Spirit of God is God. The threeness to the oneness of God. Meaning that Jesus is rich beyond all splendor. Meaning that he possessed all. All of the majesty of deity. He performed all of its functions. He enjoyed all of its prerogatives. He was adored by his father. Worshipped by the angels. He was invulnerable to pain, frustration, or embarrassment. He lived in unclouded serenity. His supremacy was total. His satisfaction complete. His blessedness perfect. Uh, he had secured none of these rights by any effort at all. It was simply the way things were and uh, the way it had always been. And there was no reason why it should change whatsoever. But things did change, didn't they? Because the pinnacle of creation, Adam and Eve, our spiritual ancestors, committed high treason against our holy king. And when our sins separated and stained us, Jesus did not prize his possession or deity or status, so much so that he was unwilling to enter the dark stairwell where we were to rescue us. Verse 6, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So though he was equal with God, he did not insist upon his rights. Listen, if we're going to grasp these verses, we have got to grasp this truth. And it's this. Jesus had rights. He, he had the right to be recognized. He had the right to be worshipped. He had the right to be served. He had the right to be honored. He had the right to be immune from suffering. He had the right to be treated in a way that reflected the dignity of his glory. He had those rights. He had the right to arrive upon creation, well, you know, much like American presidents arrive. Air Force One, flanked by fighter jets, chauffeured about in the beast, swarmed by secret service agents. He had those rights. He had the right, uh, oh, not to have the announcement of his presence to humble shepherds in a midnight field. No, no, no. He had the right to have the announcement of his presence before uh, such an, an august body as, say, our, our lawmakers in assembled Congress. He had that right. He had the right to have what uh, our American presidents enjoy. The sergeant of arms steps inside the chambers. Mr. Speaker, the president of the United States. 
had those rights. And he deliberately chose not to exercise those rights or to claim those rights or to grasp at those rights. He waived those rights. Verse 7 says, he made himself nothing. Literally, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. What does that mean? Does it mean that somehow Jesus shed, you know, 50% of his deity? So half human, half God? No. No. No, to understand what it means when it says he emptied himself. It's not what he emptied himself of. It's what he emptied himself into. He emptied himself by entering the very world that he created. He emptied himself not by taking off, but by taking on. He emptied himself not by subtraction, but by addition. One scholar said, he became what he had never been without ceasing to be what he had always been. And what's that? Servant. Verse 7. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The royal son assumes a new relationship with his father, that of servant. In the Greek, doulos. A non-person with no rights. He was under the law. So he can't cry out to those who crucified him, don't you know who I am? And all of this takes place in human flesh. Verses 7 and 8, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. So it's not just that he appeared to be human, it's that there was nothing visually extraordinary about Jesus to lead anybody to believe that he was anything but human. He didn't glow. He wasn't radioactive. He didn't have a halo. He was flesh and blood. He sweat. He got the flu. He had body odor bad breath and pimples and he got blisters and splinters and sore muscles and probably gout. It means he got sleepy and hungry and thirsty and he was tempted in every way just as you and I are tempted. There's not one temptation that has come across your life that Jesus himself was not tempted by in his days on earth. Greed, power, pride, money, sex. We've been having conversations in our leadership and staff about what it looks like, what, where is God leading us in terms of becoming multicultural, multi-ethnic, a church for the nations. And you know, I don't have the answer to the question I'm about to raise, but it really makes me wonder Tempted in every way. Oh, Lord, how were you tempted to commit the sin of racism? What would that have looked like? And then how did you overcome that temptation? 
tempted in every way. The, the, he was in the form of God. Became the form of a servant by taking on the form of flesh. And, and, and here's the deal. The very last people on the face of the earth who could be the, convinced that God had in fact come in the flesh would be first century orthodox monotheistic Jews. The very last people. Romans, Greeks, sure. That was just kind of in the, yeah, sure, the, the gods visiting among us in the, in the flesh. Yeah, Romans and Greeks. But, but conservative orthodox monotheistic Jews to really be persuaded that Yahweh had put on human skin? How remarkable Jesus must have been to interact with. His emotional health, his the quality of his life, his conversation, his intellect, his relational skills, his morals, his teaching. In a world where people were so worried about how they looked and who they were and being a somebody instead of a nobody, the one who truly was a somebody put himself in a position which virtually guaranteed that he would be misunderstood and misrepresented and mistreated. By putting on these veils, he put on, he who was in the form of God, put on the veil of humanity and put on the veil of servanthood. And then finally, Paul tells us that he, that he put on the most violent veil of all. Verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The violence and the horror of the cross buried the splendor and beauty of Christ so deeply that it became impossible for flesh and blood to see who he really was, battered and abandoned he looked like anybody but God. He barely looked human. He looked like an atheist. He looked like a thug. He looked like a child molester. He looked like a rapist. He looked like a crooked politician. Listen, when you hear the Apostle Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin, what else do you think that means? You think he was crucified for jaywalking? He looked like someone who deserved to be there. The iniquity of us all, all laid on his shoulders. And then he died. Last word in verse 8. Cross. Cross. This is our king. This is our king. The king who gave himself and emptied himself into creation, into human flesh, into being a servant, into death on a cross. He emptied himself, but he could not raise himself. Only his father would do that. 
What a breathtaking risk. Jesus totally trusted the love of his heavenly father. Had the father not acted, Jesus would still be in the tomb. But the father acted. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is our King, and this is Yahweh. Um, This is Isaiah language, Isaiah 45, 23, and 24. Yahweh says, to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess to God. Only in the Lord are righteousness and strength, in love. Jesus sacrificed himself for us. In love, he put his power to the service of others. In love, he exchanged the homage of angels for the hatred of enemies. In love, he took the grenade of sin in his cross-pierced hands and absorbed its blast with his body. The king who became a servant. This is our God. And so you see the apostle Paul writing in Rome in prison, writing to Philippi, a Roman colony. To say that Paul is just another religious teacher who's sharing some religious education, that wasn't Paul's perspective. Paul says, I'm an ambassador for the true king of the universe, the king in waiting, the king who one day's glory will be revealed and will, will melt every other kingdom that has ever existed. His will endure forever. And my mission is to establish these cells all over the world. And we're one of those cells, worshiping the Lord, the world's true king, and sharing the true gospel, the gospel, not of legions and chariots, but the gospel of self-sacrificing love. And Rome is gone, but God's kingdom remains. Amen. Well, that's the picture. (laughs) See it? Now, the point of the picture Do it. Do it. That's the point. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. God wants His church for whom His Son died to imitate the love of his son, self-sacrificing love. Paul did not rehearse this hymn just to give us information about Jesus. Paul had a point. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Interpret and act out your life through the grid of Philippians 2, 5 through 11. So the Christian mind isn't, this, is, this just isn't an intellectual exercise. As Pastor Dennis Lewis writes, the Christian mind is a mind that refuses to think at all unless it is in union with Christ. It doesn't even dare think a thought unless that thought will display the self-sacrificing love 
of King Jesus. Brene Brown is a research sociologist and uh, in her return to faith, what she's learned about love from our Lord, she has really timely words for us to hear. She commented, you know, people often want love to be unicorns and rainbows. But love isn't that. Love isn't hearts and bows. And when you see Jesus, you realize that. You realize, oh, oh, love is hard. Love is sacrifice. Love is trouble. Love is radical. Love is controversial. Love is being misunderstood. Love hurts. Love bleeds. Love doesn't keep score. Love forgives. Which means that in order for forgiveness to really happen, if you're going to look at the cross and you want to understand what forgiveness is, in order for forgiveness to really happen, something has to die. Whether it's your expectations of a person, or your hurt from someone else, or your resentment, or an idea about who you are, there has to be a death in order for forgiveness to happen. She says, you know, when forgiveness is easy and love is easy, there's not enough blood on the floor to make sense of that. Then she quotes Leonard Cohen. Love is not a victory march. It's a cold and broken hallelujah. The Christian mind sets its mind on the self-sacrificing love of Christ. Sees it, does it, because that's what the king says. Okay? Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. See it? Now do it. I want to close with um, just a reading from one of my favorite authors, Paul David Tripp. Love is. Love is. Love is being willing to have your life complicated by the needs of others without impatience or anger. Love is actively fighting the temptation to be critical and judgmental toward another while looking for ways to encourage and praise. Love is making a daily commitment to resist the needless moments of conflict that come from pointing out and responding to minor offenses. Love is being more committed to unity and understanding than you are to winning, accusing, and being right. Love is making a daily commitment to admit your sin, weakness, and failure and to resist the temptation to offer an excuse or shift the blame. Love is being willing when confronted by another to examine your heart rather than rising to your defense or shifting the focus. And love is daily admitting to yourself, the other person, and God, that you are unable to be driven by, by, by such a 
cross-centered, cruciform love without God's protecting, providing, forgiving, rescuing, and delivering grace. Church family, love is Jesus. See it. Do it.